0: your stuff over here, okay? Hope that's all right. Before before we kick into that passage, I'm going to do a cheeky kind of pre reflection before the sermon today. Um, And and I'll either get really shot down for doing this after the service or it'll be great either way. Um, But Rick commented on that first song um, and read that psalm out to us. Which psalm was it again? I looked it up and then I forgot the number. 36. 36. Sorry, had a moment there. Um, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Um, Aren't the words of that sound incredible? I, I, just the, the ones, um, your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, really hit me today. Uh, the, the ESV translates it as, your righteous li- righteousness is like the mountains of God. It's like picturing Sinai. And the full presence of God represented there, and this huge mountain, and 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 I think about it, and I think about my righteousness. You know, have you ever um, have you ever shoveled sand, um, like a like a like tried to move a pile of sand or of dirt or gravel or any, it doesn't really matter what the substance is, but um, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, that's not that much, and then you start shoveling, and, and you like, you've done a whole trailer load, and it's like it's still the same shape. It's just doing it to offend me, you know, um, but like the. God's righteousness is like the mountains um, you know so often my righteousness is not even like a pile of sand it's like a ditch <laughs> it's inverted um, you know but but thank God you know in Jesus we see that God's love reaches far above reaches to the heavens I just I don't know that just struck me today anyway I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into the, the sermon proper. Uh, Jesus, thank you that your love reaches to the heavens. Uh, your, your steadfast love, your covenant love for your people exceeds any of our brokenness and any of our falling, Lord, and any of our failing. Um, and Lord, you came in righteousness and you lived righteously and you died a sinner's death for us. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. We pray that today as we come to your word, you would show us your love and your faithfulness. You would show us your goodness. Uh, You would show us, Lord, to walk in your ways as we are more and more struck by the truth of your great goodness towards us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, last week... Uh, saw us stepping into a new section of Luke's Gospel, uh, which you might call the king has arrived at Jerusalem, without stumbling so much through the sentence. You might remember that way back, way back, if you've been with us for a while now, and I mean a while, like this was probably more than a year ago, I would guess, but maybe not quite that long. You might remember back in Luke chapter 9, we had a, a, a significant change in the narrative of Luke's Gospel, where we read that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, uh, if you imagine the ministry of Jesus kind of being like a, a stream or a river, then that was the moment that it started flowing faster and in a more direct manner towards the lake, more purposefully moving onwards. Jesus was on the clear road to Jerusalem and to the cross, and whatever was uh, happened, whatever has been happening uh, over the last ten chapters of this book, it's been a huge chunk of the book has happened in that progressively intensifying context where people have been called into the kingdom. Disciples have been instructed in how to live in the kingdom. Jesus has been turning the world upside down as he has described the upside down kingdom of God or more rightly the right way up kingdom of God. And the rest of the world upside down. He's been breaking the limits that people would have placed on who can be saved and what it means to be a child of God, a disciple of him. And as a result of all of that, on the road to Jerusalem, tensions with the religious leaders have been mounting. But as of last week, kindly brought to us by Phil Cook, me old man over here, uh, the flow of the river has changed again. Uh, it's intensified in fact. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, hailed as the king by many uh, and, and as the savior of the world, rejected by the Pharisees. And then as he came directly into the temple and cleansed the temple, cleaned out those who had made what was meant to be the costly worship of God into a business transaction, as those things happened we moved kind of from the fast flowing river into the white water rapids so to speak the king has come to jerusalem to take his throne and what i mean by the white water rapids of jesus ministry is that from here until the end of chapter 3 uh, chapter 23 kind of, kind of from here until the cross we'll mostly see jesus in direct conflict with the powers that be in fact, we're going to see five rounds kind of, of, of conflict between Jesus and just about every power that the world could throw at him with a gap in the middle of teaching and preparation with his disciples, preparing for the cross. And so today's passage is kind of rightly understood, challenging the king round one. And this first challenge comes in the form of attempting to undermine the authority of Jesus. Uh, the passage is laid out in these three fairly neat sections. If you're reading it in ESV, there'll be three titles. We're just going to attack it like that. Uh, in the first, the leaders try to undermine Jesus, but he reveals their deep-seated hypocrisy. And this, this little bit sets the scene for what happens in our whole passage today. So, so read this with me. Um, let me just whack it open. We're in Luke chapter 20 from verse 1. And remember, as we read this, sorry, what's just happened. Jesus has just cleansed the temple. Uh, He has just gone in and thrown out the money changers. Uh, And now, immediately, we read this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. So here's what we've got. I'm going to pause there. The controversial teacher from Galilee, Jesus, has come into the temple, shaken things up in a serious way, thrown out the money changers, and now he's declaring the good news of salvation and entry into the kingdom of God. And the religious leaders come to him and they demand to know where's his authority to do that come from? Understandably, I think you'd say, like, you know, if you came in here today and, and threw me out of here, and then and you know, I'd probably say, "Hey, who sent you here? Is this a COVID thing?" No, but um, <coughs> but before we say anything about else about that, about uh, the conflict here, uh, it can be really easy for us, can't it? As we, uh, no, not really easy, really hard actually. Let's put it that way, uh, for us reading the Gospels in particular. I think uh, if you're familiar with the text, um, you've You've heard probably more messages on this part of the Bible. If you've grown up in churches, you've heard more messages on this part of the Bible than I've had hot meals. Uh, It can be so hard for us not to lose the weight of the seemingly small things that happen. Let's, Let's try to read these words that we just ran over like it's our first time. Who just entered the scene for the first time in the whole narrative of the Gospel of Luke? Actually, it's not quite strictly correct. It happened in the last few verses of chapter 19 as well, leading into ours today. For the first time in this whole Gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are named. They emerge to challenge Jesus together. Uh, We've had scribes and Pharisees before. They're kind of the leaders in the sticks, if you will, but this is something else these guys are the central leaders of israel particularly of israel's religious establishment as as designated in the old testament they are a serious deal what they represent is the mightiest human structure within the people of israel these guys held more power with the people of israel than i think anyone else aside from the roman occupying forces and god but even more than that their entrance into the story should ring a really ominous tone for us. It's okay if, if we didn't catch this, because it's, it's a bit of a separation, but they've actually, although this is the first time they've stepped into the story, they've been mentioned once before. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, remember Luke 9, 22? Just before Jesus steps onto the road to Jerusalem, he said this to his disciples. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus identified as he set out for Jerusalem who exactly would reject him, who exactly would seek his death. And here they are. Enter the primary human antagonists of the story, right? Uh, Enter the baddies, if you like the simple version of that sentence. Um, This is the beginning of a conflict that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. And it's panning out exactly as he said it would. And what they're doing here is they're attempting to undermine the authority of Jesus. Typically in Jesus' day, a teacher would get his authority by referencing other rabbis, other historical teachers, authoritative people. But these guys, they rightly assume, actually, that Jesus isn't backed up by a long list of rabbis. He's not getting up and saying, Rabbi such and such says this, and Rabbi such and such interpreted it this way, so we can say this. He's getting up and he's proclaiming good news on his own authority. And they're hoping that if they can bring it to light that he doesn't have the rabbinical background, his authority will be undermined and they'll have dealt with him nice and early on and problem solved you know? They wouldn't have said problem solved, but of course. They were pre-that campaign. But Jesus isn't so easily taken down. Here, here's what it says. He says, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, uh, doesn't what happens there just really reveal the hearts of those who are challenging Jesus? Jesus doesn't just pick the example of John's baptism because it's a tricky question, because he thinks that it's one that they'll get stumped by. It's because the way that they answer that question reveals that these religious leaders care all about the authority of man and nothing for the authority of God. All of the people were able to see plainly that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God, but John had called even the religious leaders to repentance. He called them out in their sin, and rather than repent, they rejected him. They had refused to be baptized by him. And now that choice has kind of backed them into a corner, do you see? Do they openly reject the baptism of John in front of the people, but in so doing reject the authority of God in the view of the people? That's not going to end well for them, is it? I mean, you know, they would be stoned to death for blasphemy. It doesn't get a lot worse than that, does it? Or do they accept John's baptism was from heaven? and thus acknowledge that they rejected the authority of God. Bit of a catch-22, isn't it? In the end, they flail. The great authority structure of Israel's religious establishment answers with a... (laughs) And Jesus says, then neither will I tell you the authority I act on. He won't play their game. He won't list rabbis and sources. But then Jesus does something really interesting. He tells this parable, and he really, really, this parable actually does say where Jesus' authority comes from. He kind of says, no, I won't tell you, and then he tells them. (laughs) I'm not going to list your rabbis, but get this. His parable starts with the words, uh, a man planted a vineyard. Do you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at another parable of Jesus, that he started with the words, uh, there was a nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then to return. Um, Do you remember that? Uh, When we looked at that, we kind of saw that um, those were familiar words in their context, you know, that he's referencing an actual historical event that, was ha- that had happened fairly recently. It was sort of the equivalent to me, if I got up and said, hey, let me tell you a parable, there was a ship that was declared unsinkable and then it hit an iceberg and sunk. You all know what ship I'm talking about. I was practicing this part of my sermon this morning uh, and Ellie was playing in the lounge room and she goes, I think it's the Titanic. Um, it, it was a wonderful moment of, of just backing up what I was saying here. Something similar is happening here in a slightly different way. Jesus tells a parable, that he chooses one of the most well-recognized images of God's people that's used in the Old Testament, an image of Israel. The Psalms and the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea all use the image of God's vineyard as a description of God's people. So immediately his listeners know what vineyard he's talking about. But the fact that it's so familiar would mean that for them, something would have really stood out. Because in the Old Testament vineyards, you don't usually get tenants described. That's a bit of an extra step here. And so we must ask, and they would have asked, who were the tenants of Israel? Who are the ones that God left to care for his vineyard, to grow the vineyard? And obviously the answer that he's gunning for here, which we get explicitly at the end when they get it, is the leaders of Israel, or to put it in another way, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, uh, elders. But this parable is just openly condemning of them. I don't need to explain that to you, I don't think. Jesus pulls no punches here. He describes the way that they have beaten, brutalized, and turned away the servants that God had sent to them. The servants he's describing there are the the prophets of the Old Testament uh, who had been sent to Israel, uh, and and they'd been rejected, particularly by the leaders of Israel. They'd been persecuted when they came and called them to repentance for walking away from God and worshipping false gods. You know, kind of culminating in John the Baptist, really. But then Jesus goes one step further, and this really ups the ante. The, the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son, says Jesus. Uh, he... What he's done there is he's continued the parable and taken it from the past into the present, the past sending of the prophets up to the the present arrival of the son. Surely these wicked tenants will listen to the son, right? They will respect him. Surely when God sends his own son, the people that God left to care for the vineyard will hear him. And, and, and like, don't miss it, Jesus is making a huge claim here directly in the faces of the religious establishment of the day. He's claiming to be the beloved son of God. Sent to his people. But then Jesus just unearths the hearts of these leaders again. He gets to the core of what they want. He says, the tenants of the vineyard think to themselves, hey, this is the air, let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Why is it that the leaders don't acknowledge Jesus? Why do they seek to undermine his authority, to neuter his power? It's because in the end, they don't want God involved in the picture. They're not here to worship God. They're here because it's a position of power, because it gives them benefits, In the end, they're here so that the kingdom and the power and the glory will be to them forever and ever. Isn't it amazing? Jesus so clearly is aware of what's happening in this entire narrative. He knows that he's come to die. He knows that they will reject him and that they will crucify him. And Jesus says these words to those that would have been, sorry, these words that would have been chilling to the Jewish hearers especially to the leaders. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants that give the vineyard to others. Jesus is saying that the exact thing that they sought to gain by killing the son will be taken from them because they kill him. Their fruitful vineyard, all of the power that these men have Will be taken from them and and more than that the people of god will cease to be a national body and will become an international everywhere body after the leaders kill jesus his gospel would go to the corners of the world and god would call in his uh, would would call in his people from every tribe and tongue and nation and he's still doing that today But these words are so controversial to the listeners at the time that they cry out, surely not. And this is probably just the crowd listening, not the religious leaders. You know, the, the, just the crowd go, no way, <laughs> that can't happen. Surely God won't take the kingdom away from Israel and expand it across the earth. They didn't realise this had been his plan all along. But in response, Jesus quotes a psalm. And and what's interesting is that this psalm was, by that time, basically universally acknowledged as a messianic psalm. It speaks of uh, God's chosen king coming into the world to save his people. Psalm 118 it is. And the words he quotes about the Messiah, about himself, are this. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone." And what that means is that even though they kill the son, the son wins. The stone is a picture of the Messiah, and he is rejected by the builders, by the religious leaders, by the establishment. He will be killed by them, but by God's sovereign hand, he will then become the cornerstone, the foundation of the new people that God is building. Their rejection, the son's death, isn't the end. Jesus will win. And like he says there, those who oppose the cornerstone are crushed. Do you see where we are now? Jesus had painted a high contrast black and white world. You're either one of the ones who is with the stone, with the sun, a part of the new thing that God is building, or you reject him and you pay the price. This isn't uber-friendly Jesus, I'm afraid. This is direct and truthful Jesus. And the question we're led to ask now is, how must we respond to this news? That you are either with Jesus or against him. And it is the difference between life and death. And funnily, I think we actually get a pretty good answer to that, right? In in the final part of our uh, text today. The leaders give up on confronting Jesus directly, but still try to undermine him indirectly by sending people to trap him with his words. But Jesus turns their trap into a chance for truth to shine. They ask him, should we pay tribute to Caesar? Is it right for us to? If you don't know, that's a trick question for Jesus. If he says no, then they hand him over to the Romans for insurrection. Because he's he's saying, don't pay your tribute to Caesar, which they were legally required to do by the Romans. If he says yes, they hand him over to the people as a a traitor to Israel, because they hate the Romans. But Jesus turns it for a higher purpose. He says, hey, give me a coin. Whose likeness and whose inscription are on it? Caesar's, they say. Just what else are you going to say? And he says, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. I think those words would have held a lot of weight for the original listeners. Give Caesar the things that have his likeness and his inscription, and give God the things that have his likeness and his inscription. These people asking trap questions, trick questions, in the middle of the Jerusalem temple weren't ignorant of the Old Testament. And certainly neither were the priests and the scribes and the elders who had sent them. They were the experts in the Old Testament. The experts among the experts. They would have known where the inscription of God is to be found. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. uh, Isaiah 6 says, Uh, verse 3 there's these creatures that surround the throne room of God in a vision of Isaiah uh, in heaven and and they cry out holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is filled with his glory so where do we find the inscription of God where is it written who God is where has he declared who he is everywhere everything is his the whole earth is a statement from God that he is the great good king over all. But more specifically, these people would have known where the likeness of God can be found, wouldn't they? Caesar's face is on a coin, but the Bible and the Old Testament scriptures, which they held to be the very words of God given to them, and so do we, uh, begins with God creating people in his likeness. In the image of God, he created them. Everyone is created in God's likeness, and therefore everyone owes themselves to God. Here's the message of this whole passage today if you want it in just one line Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the mighty cornerstone, and every person created by God needs Him. In fact, every person created by God owes their lives to Him. When faced with the beloved Son, the cornerstone of this creation, of the new creation, who will have victory over his enemies, who died but rose again in victory over death. The question we are faced with is, have you handed your life to him? Yeah, I want to ask this of everyone here today, because because all of your life is his. Perhaps, um, Perhaps you've never handed your life to Jesus. Today could be the day for that. Today you could receive the powerful work he did on the cross to take all the punishment for your sin and and you could move from death to life, from being an enemy to be crushed by the cornerstone to being uh, a part of the people that is built upon the rock, Jesus. If that's you, you the call is clear, right? Trust in him. Trust in Jesus Hear the words of the gospel that in love for you he suffered and died for you and rose to give you life in his name. Trust in him and be saved. But perhaps you have trusted in Jesus. You know, I think we've probably got a few here in that category. I hope that's tongue-in-cheek. Um, perhaps you have prayed a prayer at some point and handed your life to Jesus. But, but hear this, you know. The coal is the same for us. Give to God the things that are God's. Being a follower of Jesus is not just about a one-off moment of faith, nor is it about uh, a few bits of your life or a once a week moment of faith. It's about coming to real faith in the Savior of the world who brings life to every part of your life. And who uh, uh, sorry about and having Every part of your life changed as you come to know him more and more. Handing our lives to God is an ongoing exercise. And please know, although the words of Jesus here have a note of rebuke, because he is speaking to those who refuse to follow, actually what he's calling us towards, I could describe as joy, most simply. He's calling us toward living life as we were made to live it. With the purpose that it was given by its creator to bring glory to him in every part. And although that could carry out in in countless directions of application, you know, I could go like, all right, now we're going to apply this sermon and we could be here for the rest of our lives. I I, want to leave you with just one today. The most obvious one in this context, I think. Uh, Are you living in submission to the call? Are you handing your life to God and being built on the cornerstone in submission to the call of Jesus to carry the good news of his saving power out to the world around? What better way could we bring glory to God than to be active in the work of bringing people away from being crushed by the cornerstone away from the just judgment of god and into the people who are built on the cornerstone into relationship with the savior with god what better way could we bring joy into our lives seriously compare it to anything you find joy in and then think how does that compare to following the call of Jesus to be a part of His ministry of bringing lost people from death to life, <laughs> what could be better? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of us actually, if we're honest, we're pretty keen for that, right? I, I hope that I'm not the only one on that page. Um, I don't. I know I'm not. Actually, we did Super Club the other week. I know for a fact that I'm not. But perhaps. Uh, perhaps, although we're keen for that, we don't know how to go about it. or We don't feel confident in in going about it. Um, I'm pretty sure that that relates to a bunch of us here today. If that's you, don't feel condemned by this. That's why God builds us as a people on the cornerstone. We're not just sent individually into the world. We're sent as a people to bring good news. Hear this, because this is something that kind of the church missed for a really long time. Uh, was We kind of went like, we come together on a Sunday and then we each go out on mission individually during the week. And that's not untrue, but it misses a step. We are corporately sent on the mission of God as well. Together. We're sent as a people to bring good news to the world. Now, I'm actually really excited about the coming months I'm going to I'm going to jump the gun here and announce something that that um you know we talked a little bit about but uh, but it'll come up in the gospel communities here at gospel church. We're going to be um, leaning into this idea of finding and working on common mission together. The, trying to as a group, as a gospel community, stepping into it and asking the question, well, if God has called us together onto his mission, then who is he calling us as a people together to? Um, what, I, what I mean is that we're going to be seeking to ask the answer, uh, seeking the answer to the question, who has go- God called us to reach together? And it's not just, we're not just asking a theoretical question there. We're trying to step in action in faith into what God's calling us to do. The Bible is really clear that mission happens both individually uh, as we each live in the world and, corp- and and also corporately as we as a people bring the good news of Jesus into the world and together display his likeness. And I think that as we step into that, we're going to be used by God as a part of his ministry of bringing people from sin and death to life and joy and peace with their creator, with God in Jesus' name. That excites me, I don't know if it excites you. I think it does. And if you're one of those people who who feels like you just don't even know where to begin, if that's just an intimidating thought for you, the idea of reaching people, then be doubly happy Because this is going to be a place where we grow, where we learn, where it's okay to be new to it, even if you've been in the faith for a long time. But we grow and learn how to live on the mission of bringing the gospel to people and bringing people to the beloved Son of God, to the mighty cornerstone. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, you are the Son, beloved by God, sent into the world to save, to seek and to save the lost. You are the mighty cornerstone, the beginning, the foundation of God's great work in building his people, the church, and building his kingdom. God, you are building your kingdom, and we trust that you are, because we know that Jesus came and lived and died and rose, so we can know that you are at work. Lord Jesus, make us a people who love to step out with the truth of the beloved son of the mighty cornerstone. And Lord, I just want to pray specifically for our gospel communities in this coming season, that you would fortify us with courage, like Jesus said so many times, that we would take courage. You've overcome the world. And that we would, trusting in the goodness of Jesus and trusting in the power of the Spirit, step out, plan, strategize, reach, speak to people, get connected to people and speak gospel into their their lives. Lord, that our hearts Burn for it, because we burn for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're uh, we're gonna.